hardly have one, but Andrew has one, so I'd better have one as well. <coughs> Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Which is a fairly familiar passage to most of us, but uh, I'm going to go back a little further than we usually do. I'm going to put it in its context. So we're going to read verses 17 to the end of the chapter, verse 34. <coughs> in the following dire directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences amongst you to show which of you has God's approval. I think he's being sarcastic. So, so then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you eat, sorry, whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why so many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if you were more discerning with regard to ourselves, if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should eat all together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. When I come, I'll give further directions. We don't usually read the whole context of the passage when uh, we stylize it when we come to do communion. And I understand that, and I understand the reasons for that. But so often, we miss what the passage is really about. <coughs> this church in Corinth was set in a pagan city. The first verses of, the, uh, um, of, of this letter says, to the church in Corinth. That in itself is a miraculous statement. It's an amazing statement to the church in Corinth. If you know anything about Corinth, it's a bit like Newport. Um, <coughs> a bit bigger, not much bigger, but a bit bigger. But it was a port. It was also a garrison town where there were soldiers uh, stationed. You know what can happen when the Navy and the Army get together. And uh, you know what happens when the Army, uh, the, the, the Navy are around. There, there was a lot of immorality. In fact, the, uh, the word Corinthian in the Roman Empire meant somebody who was dissolute, somebody who was morally loose. 
And uh, there were temples on every corner in the city. There was a whole smorgasbord of religions and things you could turn to for, uh, for whatever you wanted, for uh, appeasement in your heart, for a feeling of well-being, for whatever. And all of these different uh, temples and these different gods uh, were followed by different people. So in the middle of this, a church comes into being through the preaching of the gospel. And here are these people who have come from this background. And they're still somewhat infected by that background. It was a church, actually, that was uh, full of divisions. Uh, there were wealthy people in the church. There were poor people in the church. And in those days, uh, when they took communion, they didn't, they didn't just have little uh, bits of uh, cracker and, and a, a thimble full of wine. They had a love feast. It was a meal. In fact, it was copying the Passover, but in a Christian context. So what was happening was <coughs> the richer people in the church were coming early with their hampers, with all the stuff, the champagne or whatever they had, and uh, they were scoffing theirs before the slaves who were having to rush around doing their jobs before they got to church could arrive. So by the time the slaves and the poor got there, nothing left for them. And Paul says, is this the way you should behave? This is supposed to be the Lord's table that we're talking about. The Lord's table is about something very different from what you're making it. And so he writes this passage which goes back to the day when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. The bit that we are more familiar with. Which begins, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. <coughs> Paul is making it quite clear that this passage, this account he, he, he is giving is from the Lord. It's not just something he's invented, it's not something he's made up. What I want to do this afternoon is to go back to basics because this is what Paul is saying to these people in Corinth. He says, look, let's get back to basics. What's this thing really about? And I'm going to give you five words that I hope will help you to remember what communion is about. I'm glad I'm in a church which uh, breaks bread every Sunday. Every church that Margaret and myself have worked in, planted or, or served, We've insisted that we break bread every Sunday. Why? Because we need to come back to the cross every Sunday. It's vital that we come back to the beginning every Sunday. That we understand the roots of who we are and what we are in Christ. So Paul says, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks... He broke it. And this is identification. He took bread, he gave thanks, he said, this is my body. A dictionary definition of identification says, it's the fact of being the thing that a person is. Identification. I don't know whether you've ever reflected what this really means. But at that feast they had unleavened bread because they were following the pattern of the Passover. It was something like this. The matzos that's used nowadays by the Jews is a stylized version, but it was unleavened bread. 
Have you ever reflected what it means for the Lord of glory to take a piece of substance, matter, a piece of bread, and say, this is my body? Why is that significant? Because lots of those temples that are around in Corinth, lots of those alternative ways of looking at spirituality said, if you're going to be spiritual, you don't have anything to do with the material. Because religion is all about the spiritual. It's all about something spooky. It's all about something ghosty. It's all about something that is not material. And here the Lord of glory takes a piece of bread in his hands and says, this is my body. It's amazing. Amazing. The God could take a piece of stuff and say, I identify with this. I identify with this. Why? Because he's saying, I identify with you. <coughs> we, we all know about identity, <coughs> what it means. <coughs> the Six Nations competition, rugby competition was on a few weeks ago. We knew everything about identity. We knew who was Welsh and who was English and who couldn't care less. Because we know our identity when it comes to rugby. Jesus knew who he identified with. He had two identities, God and humankind. And he was unique because never, ever in the whole of the universe, in the whole of time before or since, has there ever been anybody who could say, I'm God and I'm man? With whom did Jesus identify? He identified with God. But because God had a purpose for the world that he created that had gone wrong, he also identified with Israel. Because Israel was to be the means by which God's proclamation of a new world, of a new creation, was going to come into being. And he identified through Israel with humanity. This is the eternal made man. What an amazing thing. You take your bit of cracker next week, I hope you won't think about it the same. Because, you know, it's so easy, like these Corinthians did, because we do it regularly, just to take it for granted. Bit of cracker. I'll eat this. I might think about Jesus a little bit, but actually, what's going to happen? What are we going to have for tea when we get home? <laughs> or whatever is going through your mind. But really, we need to reflect that this is about identification. Jesus identifies with us. Actually, Jesus is here with us at the table. I believe in the real presence. In the bread and the wine, the Catholics talk about real presence. They mean something else by it. They mean the bread becomes body and the wine becomes blood. I don't mean that. I mean Jesus is with us. He said, whenever two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst. So when we 
come to this table, we're eating with Jesus. And it's the Jesus who said, I identify with you. That's amazing. It's something we need to stop and reflect about when we take bread and wine. So this feast is about identification. But it's also about something else. It's about substitution. Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. It doesn't say broken in the original. It says, which is for you. It demands interpretation. Some versions put broken. Some versions pretend, uh, prefer not to put anything because there isn't anything in the Greek, but it requires something really. This is my body which is broken for you or given for you, as some versions put it. The dictionary definition of substitution is to replace, switch, or exchange something or someone. This feast is about the fact that Jesus took our place. Jesus became our substitute. We know all about substitutes as well, don't we? Margaret sometimes has a... a gets a recipe out and uh, she looks at the recipe and said you could substitute butter with margarine. It's a poor substitute. <laughs> I don't know whether I'm going to eat that cake actually, but I, I prefer butter, as you can tell. <coughs> but we know about substitutes. Warren Gatlin, when he is uh, bringing the Welsh squad to a international match has a bench of substitutes. He doesn't call them substitutes. He calls them, what does he call them? Finishers. They're finishers. He's changed the language. You see, a substitute, somebody who comes on because the others are too tired, knackered to do anything. So <laughs> now we put on the second bless for the last 20 minutes. No, he says, these are the guys who are going to finish the job. Jesus is the substitute who finishes the job. He's a finisher substitute. He took our place on the cross to do what we could not do. There's a story in the Second World War. To make the youngsters dull their eyes. <coughs> History. <coughs> I remember actually when my kids came home from school and said, we were learning about you in history, Dad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was born the year before, before the Second World War started. Great. It's lovely to be reminded, isn't it? But in Auschwitz in 1941, three prisoners escaped. And the deputy commander of Auschwitz decreed that 10 people would be selected and that they would be put in a chamber and starved to death as punishment unless the three escapees returned. And one man, who was a Polish sergeant, cried out in despair, my wife, my children! And a little man stepped forward, humble man, 
rim spectacles, looked like nothing, named Maximilian Kolb. He was a Franciscan friar. He said, take me instead of him. And the commander allowed it. And over the next two weeks, these ten people starved to death. Maximilian Kolb, Kolb was the last one to die. He died with a prayer on his lips. Father, forgive them. He was a substitute. And that's a great illustration, but Maximilian Kolb could never be what Jesus was. Because although he had run a, a Franciscan friary that had sheltered 2,000 Jews before he was put into concentration camp, that's why it was there, he was still a flawed sinner. Jesus was perfect. He couldn't have taken my place unless he was. And so the third word I want to uh, point attention to in this passage is uh, appropriation. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. To appropriate means to take hold of something, to use it or to apply it. And as by eating and drinking we believe and we look back to the cross, but we also enter into his new covenant with one another. Sometimes I think, uh, I was in a communion service this morning, it was good, but it was so quiet. And that was good, it was reverent. But I th sometimes think, actually, when Jesus took the bread and wine, it was a Passover feast. There'd be singing and dancing. And there'd be bitter herbs and lamb and stuff spilled on the tablecloth. If they had a tablecloth, I don't know whether they had a tablecloth. Probably not. <coughs> that saves the washing up, doesn't it? But we have to appropriate what Jesus has done. So when we come to the table, we take bread and we take wine, we ingest it. We eat it, we drink it, it becomes part of our body. It sustains us physically. Well, we're not going to be very sustained by what we have. But, you know, the principle's there, isn't it? We're sustained by it, physically. And it's just the same way we appropriate Jesus, so we are sustained by him. It changes who we are from the inside out. And some people find this very difficult to understand. When I was at Bible college, I was only five at the time, you understand. Uh, when I was at Bible college in 1960, <coughs> as I say, I was only five at the time, uh, um, I remember our principal, Andrew Macbeth, telling us a story. I've never forgotten it. <coughs> because he was a godly man, a spiritual man. He had uh, been through the Congo revival, as a Baptist pastor. Then he, uh, he pastored a big church in Cape Town before apartheid. <coughs> and he tells this story about, he was visiting an old lady in his congregation in Cape Town, and uh, she couldn't grasp that God could forgive us because of Jesus. He tried to explain it to her, she just really couldn't get hold of it. And it was, it was a very hot day, and uh, it was a, she was quite wealthy, actually. And they were sitting uh, on the veranda, and the veranda at the sides had uh, stained glass uh, panels in the window. 
And in the garden, there's some bougainvillea uh, plants, which are scarlet. And as he was on this rocking chair, rocking backwards and forwards, he noticed something. He said, I've got it. And he said to this old lady, come here. And she came and stood where he was and said, what color are those flowers? She said, red. He said, look at them through that red panel. What color are they now? He said, white. If you've never tried that trick, we used to do it when we were kids with papers off sweets. We'd look through the red paper and everything that was red went white because it filtered out. And Jesus filters out all the impurities, all the wrong things in our lives when we appropriate what he has done. Now here comes the hinge point of the passage, really, and we can so easily miss this. Jesus said, uh, Paul says, <coughs> whenever, so then, sorry, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And everybody ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. In some churches, some liturgies, some formats of, uh, of, of communion, they ask you uh, to reflect and repent of your sins before you come to the table. That's a, good, that's a good exercise. But actually, I'm not sure that we can make ourselves worthy to receive it. Told about the story, again, I, my illustrations are old, for the, back in history for the young people. And back in the 19th century, there was a, a, a Presbyterian minister in, in uh, Edinburgh. Um, he, was, he was so scholarly, he used to read his Bible from the Hebrew or the Greek and translate it in as he went along. <laughs> he was known as Rabbi Duncan. <coughs> now, <laughs> the people affectionately called him Rabbi Duncan. Uh, and... Um, the Presbyterians, I don't know whether you know about this, we're in a Presbyterian church, so perhaps we should know something about it. Uh, they uh, make a big thing out of communion, but they only have it once every quarter. And the week, communion week, once a quarter, is a big thing. You have to prepare yourself. You have to get rid of all your sins. You have to think about all that's wrong in your life. You have to put all that to one side so you can come and you're worthy to come and take the bread and the wine. And as is their custom, like here, where you have a communion rail and there's a place to kneel and the people come and kneel and that bread is handed to them. There was an old lady, uh, as he was handing out the bread, she said, uh, and he said, why? She said, I'm not worthy. And he said, take it, woman. It's for sinners. That's appropriation. But these people were not appropriating. Why? Because they didn't discern the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? The bread is the body. The, blood's the, uh, the, the wine is the blood. No. It means that God's people are the body and blood of Christ. It is God's people that we need to discern when we come to the table. <coughs> and if there are factions, quarrels, divisions amongst us, preferences, cliques, whatever, we are, in effect, doing what these people were doing. 
we're failing to discern the body and the blood of the Lord. If we do that, we can't appropriate what we have in our hands. You can eat it, you can drink it, but you're not appropriating it until you discern what it's about. Because this feast is about unity. It's about belonging to one another. And we have to take that seriously. If we despise people of less rank or social status or education than ourselves, then we are not discerning the body and blood of the Lord. We're not discerning who God's people are. The fourth word is proclamation. Let's go back. I think it should say verse 26 there. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does it mean to proclaim something? Announce it, herald it, speak it, preach it, whatever it means to say it out loud. So how can we possibly be proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes when we are in here and we're taking bread and wine? To whom are we proclaiming the Lord's death when we take bread and wine? having appropriated it properly. I want to suggest three areas. We proclaim the gospel to the body of Christ when we take bread and wine. We are proclaiming to one another, Jesus died for us. And Jesus rose again from the dead for us. So we proclaim, as we take the communion, we proclaim, we announce it, we speak it out to one another. But also... We're speaking it out to the heavenly powers that see what we're doing. Paul refers to that in the letter to the Ephesians about we proclaim to the powers in the heavenly places when we bow the knee together. But we also are proclaiming it to the world, to the public. You say, well, they don't see what's going on in here. No. But in two ways they can. Some of them know what we're doing. <laughs> so there's a small minority to whom we're proclaiming it. But if our lives are changed because we do this every Sunday, then we are proclaiming it to the world. So proclamation is important when we take the bread and the wine. The fifth word, with this I finish, is anticipation. He says, do this until he comes. To anticipate means to look forward with expectation or to experience something in advance of its expected time. We had a little bit of that with the Six Nations, didn't we? Warren Gatlin said if they won the first, first <laughs> game, they'd won the series. Well, it might not have happened, but it did. <laughs> But in this context, it isn't a case of it might not have happened, but it did. It's a case of it will, because God has promised it. And so, when we come together and take the bread and wine, we're anticipating what God is going to do in the final days.
you go to Revelation chapter 7, and it says that there will be those of every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation who will proclaim the praise of the Lamb. That's what it's about. I love that. One of the things I love about this church is the number of different cultures and nationalities we have together. It's a little foretaste of what it's going to be like. I'm tempted to say in heaven, but it's in heaven and earth because there'll be a new earth as well. And when we, in unity, take the bread and wine and mean it and we appropriate it properly, we're anticipating heaven. We're anticipating the kingdom that is to come. I'm glad we sang that song, where's Hannah? About the wedding bells ringing. Because the anticipation is also about the marriage supper of the Lamb. You find that in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 6 to 9, where it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a figure of speech. It's a picture of what it's going to be like when God has put all those things together that have fallen apart. When he rights every wrong. When he corrects every injustice. When he saves us completely. Yeah, we're saved, but we're being saved. And every time we take bread and wine, we announce, Lord, we're being saved. And we're being saved because you, Lord Jesus, are at the center. And his call is a call to unity. If this church is to impact this city, we have to live in unity. We have to live in the reality of what we do for five or ten minutes every Sunday afternoon and recognize something far more than five or ten minutes. Taking some symbols. They're not just symbols. They're indications of a reality. That's more than just a symbol. It is pointing to the future. Pointing to God's purposes for this city in which we live. And we need to make Jesus the center. And I wonder whether we could sing, I'm coming back to the heart of worship again. Thank you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's so rich. We thank you that you don't want to just leave us the way we were when we first encountered you. That you want us to be the people of God in this place. Amen.